Programming Throwdown, episode 124, 2021 holiday episode. Take it away, Patrick. Welcome, everyone, to uh, this evening of sitting by the fireplace on the bearskin rug and laid out in front <laughs> and uh, sipping on whatever beverage you want to use your imagination about and thinking about all the wonderful... Oh, wait, this is 2021. Never mind. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so we got a holiday show. It's, I guess it's a tradition as much as we've been doing this uh, way too many years. Uh, it's become uh, ingrained. We have some good questions from uh, users in the Discord. And so uh, we'll, be, we'll be doing those. Some people are here listening live. So shout out to all the people live listening to this later, hearing that they were listening live. And in general, yeah, just uh, going to have a little bit of a casual episode where we uh, talk about what's been amazing this year. Uh, that'll be short. And uh, <laughs> it's been a tough year, man. But there's been a lot of good too. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually like. I feel bad. I mean, it's been a really hard year for a lot of people. I think we said that last year too, which it was last year too. Yeah. Uh, yep. This year was supposed to be better. I went to the party store to pick up some supplies for like Christmas, which first of all, like everything was out of stock. That was horrible. I noticed that too. Yeah. So, so is that related to the, you think, to the supply chain issue or I wonder what's going on there? Oh, yeah. I assume everything gets blamed on COVID and supply chain. I, I'm sure that is true a lot, but I'm not sure like to what degree it's true. Um, yeah, but I saw I all the New Year's stuff was like, uh, you know, screw 2021, 2022 or bust, you know, all this stuff. And I'm just thinking <laughs> it's like, I feel like we've been on this uh, roller coaster before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I think, I feel like 2021 was better than 2020. I mean, obviously like, like personally, you know, anything could happen, but I feel like for the, for, for globally, I feel like 2021 was better, but, but I'm not, I'm not totally sure. I haven't thought about it enough. Um, we also have um, gifts. We're going to be giving out t-shirts to uh, lucky patrons. I actually took the Excel spreadsheet, did, did the, uh, primitive thing of you know calling rand on all the rows and then sorting and um and we have a list here of folks which you know every now and then i'll salt and pepper some uh some winners uh names on the discord raffle so thank you all for supporting the show you know pretty much all the money goes back into the show either cover server costs we try to get more folks um, into the show um you know by advertising and and uh, you know especially try and look for folks who are you know just starting their career or high school or college and, and try and get them interested. And uh, I, I actually, you know, I started a new job, which, which we could talk about at some point later, but uh, it was kind of cool. A couple of people reached out to me and said, Hey, you know, I used to listen to your show. You know, I don't anymore. Cause I'm old. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 no, they said, they said like, I got into programming from listening to your show. Um, you know, and now I, I work at, you know, your company and everything. And so it was really cool. Um, and so we try and, uh, you know, reach as many folks as possible. And, and, you know, patrons are a big part of that. So I really appreciate that. Patreon has grown really big, like not just ours and thankful to all those people, but like I noticed it's really like garnered its place in like the internet. Uh, I think Kickstarter was kind of like that thing for a while. I don't know. I'm not uh, hip, but I feel like Kickstarter might have jumped the shark a bit. Like, but Patreon, like, wow, like, 
the number of people I see now like doing Patreon subscriptions has like really exploded. I think even Patreon went or is going to go public. And so, I mean, they've really become a big thing. Like I was, oh, I was talking with someone about, you know, YouTubers, right? Cause that's always a thing now. Like, oh, this YouTuber, that YouTuber, yep. like they got, you know, how much money they're making, all that stuff. And, uh, you know, Jason and I aren't YouTubers, but being that we have a podcast, I mean, I guess we have a bit of knowledge about how that works. And it's like, I know why all those people have Patreons on the side and why they push their merch so hard is because, yeah, I mean, the money to be made from actual viewers is pretty bad. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, you know, I don't really like, uh, actually a, a bit more inside baseball since it is the holiday episode. You know, we vet our advertisers very, very carefully. Um, you know, you'll never see us, you know, saying, oh, you know, buy gold or here's health insurance. Or it's always things the best that we... underwear. <laughs> best. Yeah. What was that? What was the one that everyone was doing? The Dollar Shave Club? Yeah, we're not doing Dollar yeah. Shave Club. Um, you know, it's all it's all things that we believe in. And uh, but, you know, because of that, you know, these are folks that, you know, I think I think they don't have massive, massive multi-billion dollar advertising budgets. Um, you know, and so advertising is 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 great. We really appreciate you know, that the sponsors of the show. But but really, Patreon is what kind of is was what we use to really get you know the word out there. And so, um, you know, and I think that's really important. It keeps the show you know authentic. And so, yeah, I think you'll see more and more of that, of, of uh, you know, people moving to that model. So uh, let's see if we can do, uh, this is a bit impromptu, but maybe we can start up here. What is something this year from a programming perspective that you think you've uh, changed your mind on, learned, adopted, that you, you kind of picked up something for like, not, not just like speculative, maybe we'll do that later, but like, what is something that, that you this year feel like uh, you took on programming wise? Yeah, that's a really good question. Oh, sorry, I should have given it to you in advance. <laughs> no, no, I think it's fine. This year, it's been a few years since I really got into Visual Studio Code. I mean, that might have been a 2019 thing. Um, but in 2021, one thing I, well, so a couple of things. One thing is um, I started getting better about about taking notes. So I know it's not totally a programming okay. related thing, but you know, I started doing a lot more kind of Google Docs and having a Google Drive that's kind of organized and, and keeping a lot of notes on different things. Um, that's been really helpful. Anything I can kind of put down on e-paper is one less thing I have to just keep in active memory in my in my brain. And so I can kind of put it there and then I only have to remember to check it. And so if I put enough things there, it works out. I, one thing I really got into more is um, using using Tmux. Um, so yeah, I've used Tmux for a while, but now it's just become the sort of de facto thing. Like right when I log into a machine, I'll jump into Tmux um, because otherwise, like you might get going and then and then you lose internet or you your machine goes to sleep because you you know especially with working from home, like you might be into something, you know, and then uh, the doorbell rings. And so, and then you end up doing something in the backyard and then it only takes maybe at least on my laptop, like 10, 15 minutes before the laptop to go to sleep and your SSH connection is busted. Um, I've started using uh, Eternal Terminal and Tmux for, for almost everything. And even like my Visual Studio Code and my Jupyter Notebook and all of that, I have all of those going through Eternal Terminal tunnels. So none of those connections are ever broken. And so that's, that's kind of a workflow change I've started doing this year. Interesting. 
I'll give I'll give two for myself. So my first one, I, I need to be better about what you're describing. I guess I do a bit more on local machines, so not kind of SSHing around as much. Um, so I guess I get it by with uh, not not investing in a good solution there. Yeah, but I think for for me, so from like a programming perspective, I think I took on a bit more uh, sort of like math and statistics kind of stuff, which well, I've worked with a lot of people who are very deep into statistics, or even I think you're a bit into statistics more than me, but like trying to sort of not shy away from, you know, looking at lots of data and trying to come up with ways of understanding that data without just literally looking at all of it. Um, so that's been one thing that I've tackled. Um, and I've still been doing most of that in C++ for my, for my day job. Well, um, really? Think, yeah. Like stats stuff, what do you use that, Eigen or something? Uh, I mean, most, I guess I'm doing it at such a simple level. It's just mostly like using, building it up from like small level calls of, you know, the base, base stuff, like nothing. Oh, fancy. is this kind of like a MapReduce type thing? No, just like even like before, like someone gives you, like you were saying, oh, I have an Excel chart of, you know, names, right? And then like, mm -hmm. oh, I generated a random number. So, uh, you know, a question would be like, oh, how do you know without looking through all of those that you got all the numbers covered or like that the numbers are evenly distributed or whatever, right? Or even what is, what is, what are various distributions? And so those kinds of things and trying to take measures of data, not like big data crunching or statistics on, on that. Just like literally, um, like for me, that was not something that I had previously kind of tried to tackle head on is, God. you know, I generally got other people to take on the math or analytics of something. That makes sense. That makes sense. Low bar, low bar. Um, and then the, <laughs> the the second thing is, for the first time that I can remember, I'm trying to remember if I ever did it in person. I don't think I really did it formally as such, but I did pair programming. What? And really? I've always heard this, and I've always been skeptical, so I'd love okay, to Okay, so yeah, so you've not done it either. <laughs> okay, I was probably like the only one. <laughs> so we, we had some, me and a coworker, or a coworker and I, sorry, would uh, had, a, had a problem to work and um, some image processing related stuff, which I had done before. Actually, you and I did that. That was the first time you and I doing it was the first time yep. I had really tackled it. And so I was like, oh, you know, I have some experience here. Let's like, and, and this was virtual. So we use Sea Lion, which is like IntelliJ by JetBrains. And they had like rolled out a new feature where you could like do pair programming. It's like a, you know, live Google Doc, but like your code. And I think other people have similar tools as well. I think even VS Code has an option for doing this. Mm -hmm. And so um, we're like, oh, let's hop on a session. We'll get on like a call with each other. And then, you know, we'll just like, you know, hash this out together. And like literally like I'll type in one function. You're typing in the function below me. And like we're doing it. Before, it like never made sense to me because like you have only one keyboard. And I guess I probably was thinking about it wrong. But like it never made sense that like two of us would sit there and like work together, but only one person could type. But in this way, he could, you know, scroll up and check what I was writing. I could scroll down and what he was writing. We would like tweak a function together. And we didn't like go all in on it, but it was like this remembering for me oddly is like this is the first time I ever remember doing like pure programming, like actually sitting here working on literally the same piece of code at the same time. That sounds awesome. So yeah, when I heard pair programming, and maybe I misunderstood it, or maybe you've done something slightly different and more advanced, but I always interpret it as, you know, one person's typing, the other person's looking over their shoulder, and then they switch. 
And that never quite made sense to me. What you're saying sounds awesome, or basically it's you're both, you know, at your own desks coding, but you're coding on the same project at the same time. Yeah, like in the same file, like in right, the same right. source file. Yeah. That is super cool. How does that work? I mean, it must use like NFS or something. I mean, how do you, you both know, edit I, the same file at the same time? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But I, then I was thinking, like, I wonder how many people I get. So it's like that test-driven development, agile programming, pair programming. Like I could name off a whole bunch of paradigms, statements or whatever that I know of, I've read about, been around a long time. And I'm not sure I ever did it properly. Like I've never attempted to do Like I kind of some part of it or learn from it, but never sat down and actually did it. And this was one of them. So I did it this year. I would do it again. Cool. That sounds amazing. I don't think I do it all the time. Some people advocate that like it's something you would do often. I don't know about that. But like I could definitely see certain situations it being really useful. Yeah. So I, I um, actually, now that, you know, I've had more time to think about it. You know, one thing that I've really jumped on recently is, is Next.js. Um, you know, we interviewed Guillermo from Next.js, it's got to be over a year ago. And at that time, I knew nothing about Next.js. I mean, I almost, I knew almost nothing about React.js or, or any of that. Um, but I, I wanted to build a, and actually, you can check this out. It's in a very, very alpha stage. But I wanted to build like a Google Photos, but where you would bring your own cloud, you know, storage. So... So you'd bring your own cloud storage. We would just provide sort of the website and the app, but you would be hosting your own photos on your own cloud storage, paying your own storage fees. And, and, and you know, your photos are totally safe in the sense of like, you know, like no one could ban you. You can't lose your photos. Like even if the app, even if the app went out of business or I got hit by a bus or something, you'd still have all your photos. And so I built it's called Aquinas Photos after Thomas Aquinas. And you can go to Aquinas.photos or maybe it's Aquinas.photo. I don't remember. I think it's Aquinas.photos with an S. But anyway, and I built the whole thing in Next.js and uh, it's actually amazing. I mean, I'm a really big fan. When I first started, it was very frustrating because I had a bunch of bad design patterns with respect to web programming. Um, and so these Next.js is very opinionated. And so when you try to do things that in hindsight are not good design, it just won't let you like, there's just, there's just no real way to do it. And so you kind of have to follow their, their design. But when I was done, I kind of looked back and I thought, oh, wow, this is like really nice and, and very production worthy and it can scale and it, it's like really solid. Um, so yeah, I'm a really big fan. I mean, I think for future web stuff. I'm going to stick with Next.js. It's been awesome. All right. Well, maybe let's uh, jump in and take a, a listener question. Uh, that, I don't know why I said that with like a high pitch because I was thinking it was more <laughs> ambiguous than it was. Uh, anyways, so the first one is by, I don't even know how you say that. Uh, Kevin. Oh, yeah, there we go. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry. Okay, just to clear, the person has a username, but then they put their real name. And so we'll just go with the second one. Thank you. Uh, what's been the biggest thing that pushed you to learn more during your career? I, I should have probably read that before we did our impromptu one. Uh, was it taking a new job and moving somewhere, doing stuff in your spare time, or something like a new hobby, or anything else? Um, and then yeah, also, bonus time. question, something we'll do in a second. Yep, go ahead. I was just going to say, this is over all time. So your question is still pretty different. 
That's true. All right, I'll take a shot because I actually have a, a answer at hand sure. for this. So I will say that um, for those of you who, who haven't heard or, or listened to all the years, so Jason and I like started out meeting each other by working together at a kind of old school, very large company, but not a programmer first company. And um, I would say like the programming I did there was like in my comfort zone. Like I never really felt super pushed. Like I learned stuff. But I never, like, I looked around, this, sound, this is going to sound bad, but, like, I looked around and, like, I felt like even coming out of college, and I think later probably was correct, like, I probably knew how to program as well as a lot of people that were there, or maybe even better than most, right? Like, Well, you're, you're kind of like a CS dynasty, right? I mean, your dad, uh, sure, you know, was, uh, was, was that and your My dad brother? and my grandfather were both programmers. Oh, uh, and your grandfather. Yeah, you're like, yeah, you're like yeah, the yeah. Kennedys of programming. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Um, <laughs> give me maybe a better example, but you're like a, you're like the what's another dynasty? Isn't no, like let's, a let's move on to a dynasty? different topic. So, anyways, <laughs> so I showed up and like you know this like I this, the programming there like I learned a lot like personal growth and like interpersonal communication. Even to this day, I think I've learned a lot from that experience. But from a programming standpoint, like I ne like I don't feel like it really pushed me to like really try my hardest. Like I could coast a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Then uh, actually, I guess like the story, Jason ended up getting a job in Silicon Valley. He's like, Patrick, dude, I'm going to move. Like you definitely should interview, come interview. Like, I don't I'll know if you said you. this, but we were working together on the same project. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yes. yeah okay. Fair enough. And then, so I, you know, Jason told me like, you to come, I'll help you. Cause like, you know, Jason's much better <laughs> programmer than me. Uh, interview at that time, like I was not comfortable doing the Silicon Valley style interview, Jason crushes them, which is not his <laughs> comment. That's mine. And so they're very intimidating for most people, including me. So he helped me. I don't know if you remember this. Like when you were packing up to leave, I came to your house and you helped coach me through like solving programming problems. No way. Really? Oh, yeah. That's a fantastic memory. I don't remember that. Yeah. 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 I, I could go more into detail, but it would reveal a bit of personal details. I'll tell you later. Um, okay. But but yeah, so so we went there. Anyway, so I got a job at the same company Jason had gone to, probably because he's had a good word for me, um, in Silicon Valley. And when I showed up there, I was drowning. Like, it was like I was in over my head. Those people all knew what they were doing. Like, I didn't look around and look at anyone that was like, I'm better than that person. Like, I was you know, that whole imposter syndrome just completely yeah, kicked in. Definitely. And, you know, it, it was hard. Like looking back, if I knew that was going to be that hard, I'm not sure I would have done it. But moving to Silicon Valley, and, and I don't think it has to be Silicon Valley, especially not now, like it was, you know, 10 years ago. But I think like moving to Silicon Valley, getting in that culture and being like at the bottom of the stack, like bottom of the, the ladder, let's say, and like really having to go all in on like distributed computing and map reduces and well that's that's know. I think you just hit the nail on the head there because you know the reason why you I think you know found it so challenging was that you were changing disciplines yes. versus a lot of those people you know they got their degree in distributed computing. Um, yeah, I think it was a bit of all of it, right? Like I think someone took a chance on me without a background. But I think the caliber of people, no matter what they were doing, were like, I hadn't been pushing myself. I was out of shape, right? And then ah. I joined I joined the athletic club. And like <laughs> these people, like, sure, maybe they were tennis stars and I never played tennis before. But even if they had played basketball, they would have been better than me. And so like that really pushed me to like learn 
all sorts of technology. And eventually, you know, I got my lung capacity up and I, uh, my cardio wasn't so bad and I was able to keep up and like, you know, but that really pushed me, I would say. So really going in on like taking a job that I knew would be really challenging rather than just finding a job where I thought I could be the best. That is, yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, it's a great story and also really good advice. I think, yeah, just, I just, I'll, I'll answer the question, but before I do that, I want to double down on that. You should always interview for the job you want. Um, you know, I was talking to somebody today who they were waiting to get promoted so that they could interview for another job. And I said, well, why don't you just interview for that job, you know, like, like, like at whatever level you want to be, you know, with your promotion or, you know, where I'm going with this. And and just, you know, if they don't give it to you, then that's fine. But at least you you should try, like interview for the job you want now. And um, yeah, and it's it's sounds like you know, you, you kind of did that and then you were able to get in and push yourself. And so now you uh you totally dominate. <laughs> uh, no, no. Uh but I mean look, I've seen like I think my growth has been a lot bigger than it would have been if, you know, I had just dated that spot Jason and I were originally. So Yeah, that makes sense. What about you? Well, actually, real quick, I just wanted to double click on something. You said that yes. if you had to do it over again, you wouldn't. And why? Is it because it was so difficult that it kind of put a strain on you? Or, or no, what? no, no, no. I'm not saying I wouldn't do it. I'm saying like, I think if I would have known how, like, just how much, like, under, over my head I would be. Like, I guess, like, I don't know. That's, I guess, that's not a fair sense. I, I like to think I would do it again. I mean, I feel in hindsight, it was a great choice. Um, but I think I didn't realize just how little I knew. We make this joke about, uh, at work, we do it about C++ is like, you go through that, that curve where like, you don't know C++, you're like, this language is weird. Then like, you get to the level where you first wrote like inheritance and maybe a template. And you're like, I am a freaking C++ expert. People <laughs> yeah. say this is hard. And it's like, I interview these people. I ask them, you know, kind of, it, I don't actually care what they answer. I just care like uh, as a discussion point, but like, how would you rate your C++ skills on like a, a scale of one to five? Anyone who says four or five, I instantly know it's like, oh yeah, you're really early on the curve. Um, yeah. Be because it's just like one of those things, like they don't know how much they don't know. Like, yep. Yep. yeah. And, and so I think it was, I didn't realize how much bigger the world was. And we were going from a company where, it was not programmers first to Silicon Valley company where programmers were like the superstars of the company. And so your expected output and the level of talent um, and, and also accordingly, the rewards were much, much higher. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it would have been overwhelming if you had realized what you were in for beforehand. If I had gone in like, yeah, spent like a week there with like a trial job or whatever or trial interview people always joke about that i probably had to come out then like oh there's no way i'm gonna cut it but because i was committed because i moved because i already accepted the job like there was no way out yeah that makes sense yeah that was really inspiring man um yeah biggest thing that pushed me to learn more um you know i have a i mean i guess i'll you know what patrick said really resonates with me too i mean when i yeah, when I moved to the Valley and I moved to like this research lab, you know, where, where I met a whole bunch of people who knew a whole bunch of other disciplines that I'd barely heard of, that definitely pushed me to really dive deep and, and do a lot of learning. I took, you know, a bunch of these online courses or I 
watched videos from universities all over the world. There was this um, university in Israel that had some good courses online for free. There was um, there was the MIT courses. There was also a university. Oh, I can't remember which one that had an amazing stats class that you could just listen, you know, watch all the courses and and they had really good production value. But I think, you know, beyond uh, just, you know, taking a really challenging job and, and um, I would say the biggest thing that pushed me to learn more was, was, yeah, just, just, I guess, taking just really uh, kind of big bets. You know, I think that, you know, there was like, for example, reinforcement learning was this technology that people weren't really using in industry. And so I just decided to take that on as a project and figure out, okay, why does this not work in the real world? It only works on games and, and kind of committed to that and, and put us in a position. I think maybe the story around both, both from both of us here is the same, which is to put yourself in, in positions where you're really pushing yourself and the risks are real. And, and so you have to you put yourself in these really tough environments. And, you know, you don't always succeed, but but you have to kind of put yourself in those environments. Like I've bombed interviews before. I've failed projects before. I've gotten bad ratings before. You know, that's because, you know, I'm taking risks and they're not always going to succeed. It's not it's not a risk if if, if you always win. Right. So. So, yeah, take those big risks. And then when you're in that situation, really push yourself and don't give up. You know, at some point, like, you know, you might fail, but uh, until then, you know, push yourself really hard. Um, you know, I think that's some good advice that will help folks out, especially when they're getting started. You know, there are things that now, you know, are just kind of, you know, I don't even really think about. But at the time, uh, you know, I didn't even like understand. So I guess, you know, there are things that were kind of almost like black magic. Like I have no idea how they worked. And then it got to a point where I could kind of use them. I still didn't really know how they worked, but I could use them in, enough to get by. And then you understand them and then they just become just part of your routine to where you don't even realize you're doing it. And and you're kind of building the scaffold upon scaffold upon scaffold. Um, and so, so yeah, pushing yourself will really help accelerate that process because it's going to take, it's going to take your whole life, you know, to, to continue on that. So. Yeah, this thing you said, I think I didn't know early on. And like now, like you said, I think I, I realize it and I've tried to ingrain it. But this like you have to set yourself up to be uncomfortable and potentially fail. Like if you're if you're not close enough to the edge to fail, then you're probably not growing. Yep. Yep, that's right. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you guys a really concrete example. Um. I've, I, you know, I bought, I owned a house a long time ago, but it was a very small house and my parents were really close. And so they actually helped me a lot with, you know, house related things. And, and I was in college and working full time. So I didn't really have a lot of time. So I don't really count that as being a true homeowner. That was, that was cheating. Um, but I bought, you know, a house, you know, about two years ago. And since then I've done a ton of stuff myself. Um, you know, I built a ton of stuff. I built walls. Um, you know, I built a fence, um, you know, I did a ton of, I built a path, you know, I laid down granite, I did all sorts of stuff, all just from trying to look things up on the internet. And there were some things that I messed up. Like I'll give you an example, um, I took apart the pool, um, valve and I couldn't put it back together. <laughs> and, um, I actually put it back together, but it leaked and I couldn't get it to stop leaking. 
So we had to call a pool professional to come and they fixed it for real. And it cost, and actually, you know, if I hadn't done that, it would have been like a $5 fix. But because I did that, it cost $800 to fix. And, you know, that sucked, right? But that was a risk I was willing to take because I, you know, I'm trying to push myself and learn as much as I can about home ownership. And so I've done a whole bunch of other things inside and outside the house, like replaced toilets, you know, replaced uh, outlets, did a whole bunch of, uh, replaced a bunch of the sprinklers and rerouted sprinklers. And like, I learned a lot more and ultimately saved a lot more yeah, than, cool. you know, the $800 I had to eat on that, on that pool valve, right? And so that's really what it's about is, you know, when you take a long-term view, a lot of these risks make sense. I mean, there's there's folks on um, you know my team who say, "What if I do this project and it doesn't work? Will I still get a good rating?" And and the answer is, well, you probably will get you know an okay rating if it doesn't work. But you know, taking these risks over a long enough period of time will eventually work out. You know, if you're working hard. I, I mean, that sense is a little bit similar to the advice you get with the stock market or something like that, but. Um, oh, that's a separate topic. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, maybe that's not segue. That's too much surface area, but yeah, you know, take those risks, push yourself hard, you know, and, and, you know, a single risk could easily pass or fail and don't let that discourage you if it doesn't work out. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's an iterative thing, not a single one shot measurement. Yeah, I know. Real quick, we'll do the second part and then we'll jump on to the next question. Favorite city to live in or visit? I love Venice. Um, you know, my 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 dad is uh, from there originally, and uh, I love going back there. I mean, it's it's a lot of fun. And San Antonio, which is close to where I live now, is actually similar, where they have a river walk and they have a it's not quite a gondola ride, but it's it's you know there's there's a lot of water around it. So I, I think that kind of aesthetic is really beautiful. Okay, well, mine sucks compared to that. But um, <laughs> so, like living, yeah, we'll try to do each of these faster because we're we're a bit uh, introspective here at the end of the year. But um, I mean, in, as far as living, I've only ever lived in Florida and the Bay Area, so I, I don't, I, I've not moved around that much. So I don't know that I can say too much about places to, to live. But as far as visiting, um, interestingly, for whatever reason, like visiting New York City is just like fascinating to me because it's so different than. I think like what I normally do and you can go and you don't have to drive, which now I don't drive that much anyways, but like you just like take the subway everywhere, walk and I guess specifically like Manhattan and there's just like culture with the museums and Broadway shows and then there's shopping. There's like things to do outside. So like we go and we walk so much, like we get tons more like steps on our phone recorded as like how far we, we traveled. So actually for like, at least for me and my family, like visiting like Manhattan is great. Every time we go, I was like, maybe, maybe we like move here. But I think moving and visiting are, are two very different uh, ways of experiencing a city. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I think uh, um, it's very hard to know what living there would be like. Um, but yeah, it is super fun. I've been there a couple of times. I had a blast. All right. Next biggest tech prediction. Uh, wait, real quick oh, before, oh, before that oh, question. Uh, oh, so uh, James B., James B has been a patron for uh, I don't know how many months, but he's uh, he's pledged a total of a hundred dollars on the dot. Wow. So thank you so much, James B, for all of your uh, months of, of of contribution there. And you are our first winner, so we will send you a T-shirt 
Um, you actually, we, you don't have your address on Patreon, Patreon. So um, um, I'm going to try and track you down from your email. Uh, oh, if you're listening scary. to this and you want to be proactive, <laughs> shoot me an email with your address. Um, or any yeah. James B's that uh, okay. match that query pattern. <laughs> well, yeah, actually, that's true. There's there's probably other James B's. Uh, so yeah, maybe maybe just wait for me to email you. But but James B, I'm going to email you and we'll get your address and get a t-shirt over to you. Thanks for uh, sponsoring the show. All right. Uh, speaking of James, Clever Clover, aka James, is wanting to know <laughs> our next biggest tech prediction. Next biggest? Okay, I'll say this. My, my next biggest tech prediction is I think this decentralized web thing is actually going to take off. I mean, oh, there's been like, there's That's been bold. all these things. Yeah, there's been like peer NFTs, baby. Let's go. Oh my God. We should talk about <laughs> NFTs. We should actually do a whole show on NFTs. <laughs> we, yeah, it's 2021 and we didn't talk about NFTs yet. Yeah, you know, it's not because I, I've been consuming a lot of content on NFTs, but part of it was I was looking for a good interviewer and part of it was, um, you know, I just don't really know where it's going to go. But, 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 you know, I think that this sort of decentralized, like you have a box in your house that has your personal data, like your vault. Oh, uh, you mean something different. I see. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so you're all kind of, you're kind of bringing, bringing your own data, your own infrastructure. And it's kind of, this is kind of like web 3.0. Yeah, you know, I really think that that is going to take off. Um, NFTs, you know, could be like uh, ICOs, or it's it's a big fad, and 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 people lose a lot of money. Uh, I'm not totally committed to NFTs, uh, but I think Web 3.0 as a concept is is going to take off. Interesting. My, I mean, this is. I think I am always saying that, but I believe it's true. I think SpaceX. I mean, I think. SpaceX, if they can pull off getting Starship into orbit this year, which is their goal, and we can discuss Elon Musk as a person at some other time, but like if they can pull off that goal, which, you know, there's a lot of people there besides him, but, you know, I, I think people just are underestimating how transformative getting that much. Like right now, you care about literally every ounce that goes to space, but you'll move to caring about like, vaguely how much something weighs and the frequency which was so go i think it'll just change so much right and we're starting to kind of people are starting to realize this with starlink i was having a conversation with someone the other day if starlink which is satellite-based internet like gets to where it needs to be i mean you'll no longer be able to have censorship in countries that's effective because people can just get their internet beamed in from space like you won't be able to stop that like you can today. That's going to itself have huge implications to uh, like the political landscape, uh, in addition to just like being able to get internet everywhere, which would be amazing. Uh, but like being able to, you know, have that same access that we have literally from all oppressed governments in the world, that's going to be a big deal. And wow. I think that's only like the beginning, right? Like, I think being able to, we talked about a long, long time ago, Bigelow space and like the inflatable space stations. But now like that's, that's like small stake stuff considering the payload that Starship could put into orbit, right? Yeah. And actually, I think our, our predictions kind of dovetail really nicely because, because I feel like you have some, traditionally you've had a lot of monopolies, um, and and you're seeing so for example like like uh, crypto kind of breaks a lot of financial monopolies, um, cryptocurrency. 
And so, yeah, Web 3.0 is all about kind of breaking some of those monopolies, reducing the barrier to entry by kind of making things distributed. So you don't need, you know, a YouTube sized budget to compete with YouTube. Um, and so, but then you, but then you get to the hardware issue. And so this, this is a way to sort of democratize that. So kind of you combine these two, it's like now internet is ubiquitous, you know, yeah. And you can access the internet from everywhere. No one can really shut it down unless they have space lasers. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> um, and then you build the, you know, the, the software infrastructure on top of that. It could be really powerful. All right. Uh, it's Paul asks if we could standardize all the code there is out there to one particular language, which language would it be and why would it be Python? <laughs> oh my gosh. So it's Paul officially is going to cause our uh, programming throwdown at gmail.com inbox to blow up. So thanks for that, Paul. <laughs> um, um, but uh, um, yeah, I think. Um, Man, if you could, okay, so that's a good question, Patrick. So if you personally, Patrick, could only pick one language, what language did you pick and why? Oh, I, I mean, this is a huge question, right? Like if I was stuck on a desert island and I could only bring one programming language with me, <laughs> yeah. what would it be? I, I mean, probably like, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It's just tough. Like, from a comfort standpoint, I mean, I'm most comfortable in C++. Python sucks. Um, and I, I, but I mean, I, I kind of want to say JavaScript. Like, I feel if I was like all that, like if we giant shuffled the world into whatever with JavaScript, I could get my current job done, but also get web stuff done. So I kind of want to say that this is a tough question. I don't know. Oh man, that's a really good point. I never thought about that. Like if I, if like the world turned upside down and like, what is the, programming language most likely to like help me build inertia back up I, i'm going with 68k assembly <laughs> you know i'm gonna go with i'm gonna stick with python i was originally thinking python nah. and then you know meredith who we had on the show a while back from anvil has has their whole anvil uh framework where you can um write python and then they transpile it to the web and so I guess um, if I had to pick one, I would go with Python. Like, like uh, I think all the stats stuff, just you know, all of the the um, batteries that are included there. Okay, what about if you could only? Well, actually, you already picked an old language, right? You picked some yeah. old assembly. <laughs> I was just talking about that, but no, I mean, actually, Python is good. I mean, Python and JavaScript would be a pretty good toss-up for like chance of being able to communicate with other people and like inertia and breadth the barrier to entry for a lot of other languages is is just high when it comes to the general populace. And I think people yeah. get elitist. Like, I mean, I don't program C++ because that's an elitist thing. But I mean, I think there are people who would say something like assembly or Haskell or whatever, not because they truly believed it, but in part to be elitist. Um, and then not everyone. Some people would generally die before giving up lists in their parentheses. But, uh, you know. We are definitely getting flame. I've always have I've always enjoyed writing code in C plus plus. I think uh, there's something really satisfying about it, and um, you know I do like the fact that you know well now with Python it's effectively you're getting that same feeling because the the type system depending on how you have that set up. Um, but now with Python, you know, and especially in a corporate environment, you know, you write the Python. I guess the difference is you can run the Python when the types are all messed up but you can't actually submit a pull request. It won't let you. Um, in C++, like you, get, you can't even get that far. 
Um, and as far as like a, a legit old language, I kind of mentioned it, but I, you know, I, I don't program in Lisp, but Lisp has been the one that I think has sort of stuck around the longest. Like it's old, but it continues to be a place where they continue to have enthusiasm and support. So other examples that Isbal gave were like Pascal, Fortran, COBOL. I mean, those are used, but mostly in sort of uh, not active development, but more sort of like maintenance aspects or very niche things. Whereas I think Lisp still has like, and der der derivatives thereof. So there must be reasoning to that. So yep, yep. even though I'm not a huge Lisp proponent currently, like I'll stick up for it from that aspect. Yep, yep, totally agree. Um, yeah, Lisp is, I'm a big fan of Lisp. I haven't written in it forever, but I always have a good time. So Colin G, Colin G, he, um, he's been a, it looks like he's been a patron for a little over a year. Um, so thanks, Colin. And Colin also doesn't have his address, so I'm going to have to track him <laughs> down. But, um, but Colin Jason's G, gonna you, you want to- into your house. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Do you want a t-shirt? Uh, I just need you to send me your address and your credit card so you can pay for it. <laughs> and your social. Um, no. So, so Colin G won a t-shirt. I'll track you down, Colin G, and get you your t-shirt. So thanks again for supporting the show. Um, so um, ne Necroes, Necroes? Necroes says, asks, um, if you could redo your career and education path, what would you change? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, well, Patrick, you got your master's online. What was your feeling? Would you change that or were nope. you happy with that? So, I mean, I guess like this is going to be the broken record Patrick tonight. But I mean, <laughs> for me, like, you know, I didn't, uh, you know, look, this is controversial. So, I, you know, I'll say what worked for me, which is, I went to a state university. I know Jason, you did too, but yep. but I went to a state university. Um, that left me in in Florida. That and state university system in Florida was was I think a very good value, uh, at least when I went. I don't I haven't kept track of what it is anymore. But when I went, that was a really good value, and I even got scholarships and stuff, so it cost even less. But even at like in state full price, that was a good value. I came out with a very good financial situation, got a good job out of it. That that worked really well for me. I don't think I would change my education path there. And the career I get in, no, I mean, I'm super happy that like we discussed the whole Silicon Valley thing. I think that's worked out well. Now there's a lot of timing, luck, serendipity, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, if you're a subscriber to Malcolm Gladwell kind of thing, you can go sort of read his take on that. But like, you know, I'm not saying other people could could repeat what I did, but you know, I think I've been happy. I will be careful to say how much of it is repeatable versus happenstance. Um, but yeah, I did my master's degree while working. And the broken record part of this is like, if I knew how much work it was going to be when I started doing it, I'm not sure I would. Like people ask me today, like that I work with, should I do my master's degree? Like you did your master's degree while you were working, should I? And I have a hard time answering them. I'm thankful I did it. I feel like it's one of those, if you ever don't get a job, you never know if it would have helped or not. But I don't think it like made me that much of a better programmer, to be honest. So I'm glad I have it. I wouldn't do it now. And I'm kind of proud that it's like on my resume. Uh, and I'm glad that I was getting real world experience rather than delaying getting that experience in order to do it. 
And so um, for me, that worked really well. And I'm thankful I have it. But I'm not 100% sure it's worth it today in at least the field I'm in. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I think it depends on your sort of values. Yeah, I would agree that getting a master a master's or a higher level degree, you probably don't get that money back. You know, I'd have to see data on this, but if I saw data saying that financially, you know, you barely break even if at all, that wouldn't surprise me. But I always wanted to do like really high level math. That's just something I wanted to do. And and I felt like, you know, even if it paid the same. And so I was starting my career later and, you know, there was, there was that compounding effect. You know, at the end of the day, it's like, I just, that's the kind of job I want to do. And so, um, um, you know, I just, I just felt like I needed to have more sort of, you know, kind of like training and, and I wanted to learn, you know, more about, about how to do that. And a lot of the advanced math classes are hard to take and, and all of that. And so that was my master's. And then for PhD, I got into the PhD because I wanted to have neural networks play Go. And it was at the time a really, really hard problem. And it <laughs> took years and I made like just a fraction of the progress, but I made something. At some point, like I think after you write like three journal papers, then you can kind of graduate. And so by like the second journal paper, I was pretty done. I mean, I was kind of ready to you know, to, to go get a job or be a professor. I, I didn't know what, but I wanted to finish my PhD. So, so yeah, I mean, I think that's, that was really the reasoning there. And so, you know, I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't really change anything. I think you have a good point there to interject a bit. Like you said, to get to the, the kind of things you wanted to do. And I think that is a good point. There are certain parts of certain fields that have different expectations. Like it's been my experience listening to you and, and other people, for instance, like to really hit the ground running in machine learning, for instance, I think like there is more door, there are more doors open to you if you have a PhD, at least today, yep. than, than not versus like for me and the kind of work that I'm doing, uh, you know, maybe like a more embedded slant or whatever. It's just not a thing like a master's degree, a PhD, years of experience, like they're kind of all interchangeable. You're not going to get like more benefit of the doubt or more access by having higher level degrees. Yep. I also worked all through uh, through grad school, actually through undergrad as well, um, but not full time through undergrad. But yeah, I mean, I think working while you're in grad school is, is a great idea. Um, it helps you kind of stay focused. You know, if it takes an extra year, I think that's 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 fine. You know, I don't know if it, if, uh, you know, finishing a year earlier would have really changed anything. Um, so yeah, I think, I think working for me was actually really important, helped kind of keep me grounded. And I, I learned a lot of software discipline and things like that, um, that I don't think I would have learned if I just, if I just tried to go straight through without, without having a job. MQNCs. Oh, do you want another giveaway or are we going to go to the next question? Uh, let's do it. All right. So, yeah, so yeah, Matt. Uh, oh, I almost said Matt's last name, and we'd have to oh, clip sorry. that out. Uh, <laughs> Matt, Matt I, Matt's letter I, um, you are a t-shirt winner, and we have your address. Amazing. Woo! I'll probably still email you just to confirm. Yeah, Matt I is in Great Britain. Oh, and, nice. Uh, he's been uh, a patron for, it looks like, about a year and a half. And so thank you so much, Matt, for your support. And we will uh, get a t-shirt over to you. Nice.
All right. MQNC's question is, what is the dirtiest, hackiest, anti-patterniest um, SP piece of code <laughs> you ever wrote in full conscious and even maybe enjoying the thrill? And why was it the way to go? Well, we both wrote some really ugly code oh, no. when we worked oh, no. together. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, actually, I'll tell you a really quick story. I remember we, we built this prototype. So we were working in a research lab. And so we were trying to produce little prototypes. They weren't production-worthy systems by any stretch. And we had this prototype. And this, and at the time, I mean, I was still in grad school. We were both still in grad school. And so we didn't have a lot of experience. And And I was creating a process... I think it was like every second. So basically there was a, a batch of work that needed to get done. And for every batch, instead of having like a pool of processes and using like the multi-processing library in Python and just feeding it all to the pool, I was creating a process for every item in the batch. Now I had like a semaphore. So it wasn't, you know, if there were 10,000 batches, it wasn't creating 10,000 processes all at once. You know, but it was creating, let's say five processes and when the first one finished, it was creating a sixth process. And so and so basically, we could only do something like 10,000 batches before the machine died because it was just creating processes and it wasn't cleaning them up. Oh, no. um, so that, uh, that happened. The thing that, that kind of comes to my mind here is that, you know, when you don't really know what the final product is going to look like, that is when um, I build really hacky things. Um, and so that's when I feel like it's it's the way to go um, because you know, the the design is changing a lot, the structure is changing a lot, and so I'll write something really ugly. It might be like one massive, you know, IPython notebook or something. Um, and then in hindsight, you know, I'll look at it and it'll be terrible and it'll need to be rewritten. But I still feel like that made the most sense. Um, you know, one thing that actually I talked to um, the creator of IPython notebook. Um, I'm terrible with names, but he works for Amazon now for AWS. And um, he's actually a physics professor. A physics professor created IPython Notebook. And he said something really interesting. He said, you know, when I, and this is, I'm using his language here. Um, um, he said, when I you know, open Visual Studio, the verb that I would call for what I'm doing in Visual Studio is build. You know, I'm building a library. I'm building a website. He's like, but when I open IPython, the verb I like to use is tinker. It's like I'm tinkering with something, or maybe even better is like think. You know, I'm thinking about something. And so I think you know, th there's times when you're trying to understand something, you're trying to think about something, and that's where you'll write, you know, some super ugly code, um, and and it'll help you be really agile. But then when you're done thinking and it's time to build something, then that's that's a struggle because then you have to convince everyone to rewrite it. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I mean, look, I come from a background of like C and C++. I won't tell you the number of times where I needed to do string formatting. And look, I ain't got no batteries included string formatting library. So a <laughs> uh, number of sprintfs and, you know, some slapdashy iterative pointer with modification like code comes out because I know how to do it and I know it'll be right. And everyone else looks at it and is like, what? He's like, no, just just go with it. It's fine. What are you doing here? I'm stripping spaces. Like, just just don't even just like keep going. And the same thing happens every so often. Anything that slightly resembles like image processing, where like you end up with like 
two inner like two loops, like an outer loop over rows and an inner loop over columns. I end up busting out some amount of pointer math and doing something that people just groan and are just like, what are you doing, Patrick? They're like, no, no, it's fine. <laughs> um, and then every time, which comes up fairly often, everyone knows like, hey, I need to do some bit manipulation. And they just come to me and then it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll do this for you. <laughs> That's just, amazing. Oh, what was one? Oh, we needed to like write a very partial parser for some Unicode encoding stuff. Which of course, like C probably has a library for somewhere, but we just needed a subset. So like dropping into the bit math and like deciding when you needed to continue on to like a one byte, two byte, or three byte or four byte Unicode encoding, like you know, just like hacking that crap out as like bit shift operations and you know, some pointer math. Uh yeah, that I I don't know. Amazing. I'm kind of proud of it because in my head, somehow the bits move and it works. But I, I've never successfully explained that code to anyone else. You know, there's this IQ test called Raven's Matrices. Have you heard of this? No. So it's it's basically this really complicated pattern matching. And it's been heralded as, you know, well, IQ, oh my God. I mean, we could spend like a whole show or multiple shows talking about IQ tests and that whole thing. But, but um, you know, one of the nice things about Raven's Matrices is that you don't have to know any particular language. and um, it's supposed to be like a pretty pure test of like visuospatial intelligence. I have this feeling from just knowing you for many years that you would like get a high score on Raven's matrices. Oh, no, no. <laughs> like no, I'm definitely like not going to look it up and I'm definitely not going to try it. <laughs> I have a kind of a, a, a follow-up. It seems like the work you're doing, it just surprises me that it's done in C++. Is that, what was the, the reason? I mean, I know that, it's, <laughs> I, I don't want to like dive into like your day job, yeah. but, yeah, yeah, but yeah. like, uh, did someone just make the call and say, we're going to write all of this in C++? I mean, I think it's like we, like the stuff I'm doing right now is like a library to other stuff. So so we write a bunch of library for moving moving data around and doing really efficient, like really tuned stuff because of the scale we work at, like not distributedly, but like on a single Sort of like oh, okay. And so because other people who need to call us are in C++, like we kind of have to be in C++. Got then when it. we need to write our own like interfacing to our like infrastructure, it's most obvious to just write in C++ or else you have to like write uh, some sort of like exporter, which we do do occasionally. Yeah, like, PyBind. Export this out things. to JSON or PyBind it or, or whatever, right? That makes sense. So Lidl asks, uh, thoughts on server-side rendering React and Next.js. What's that? You already covered this. Spoiler alert. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is, wow, this is, uh, what is the opposite of foreshadowing? <laughs> this is backshadowing. But uh, I'm obviously a huge fan of Next.js. But I'll, I'll talk about server-side rendering. I am, uh, I am not really sold on server-side rendering. So, so I'll give a quick backstory here. A while back, Google released this um, report, and one of the things the report said was that for every so many milliseconds it takes Google's results to show up, um, they lose that many people. So in other words, they, they did a test where they artificially added a little delay, and even just adding a 10 millisecond delay cost Google, you know, and everything is at this extraordinary scale, right? So it cost Google a bazillion dollars or something. And so they showed how, you know, uh, sites have to be as responsive as possible, even down to the millisecond. And so server-side rendering 
and there's different ways. I mean, there's there's pre-rendering where if you have a website that's never a site that's never going to change, like imagine your end user license agreement or something, you just render that once and then you never have to render it again. That I think makes sense. But but then there's this server side rendering where you still have to do everything you'd have to do on the client. You're just doing it on the server and then sending the result. And there's and and like maybe you can pre-compute like a tiny bit of it. Um, or even a lot of it, but not all of it. And you know, I'm not totally convinced that SSR is as important as people are making it out to be. So yeah, I have to admit I'm a little skeptical of that. But Next.js is amazing. I think everyone should be using it. And there's probably alternatives. So I've, I'm by no means a front end expert. But I went from you know writing in React and then a website in you know Flask or one of these things to just doing the whole thing, browser and server in Next. And I found that amazing. And so, you know, other things that do similar to Next might be better, but but that paradigm I think is awesome. I have no comment, not because it's controversial, but because it's too far from me. <laughs> All right. So we have Glenn S. Um, Glenn S is our next winner also no address so i don't know where you're from oh wow but but glenn s has been a member for a very long time he's contributed over 300 dollars over the years so yeah thank you so much glenn um for supporting the show we really really appreciate it and uh, we will get a t-shirt over to you mc platypus says (laughs) any thoughts on the visual programming language lab view I don't know anything I, about it. Do you know anything? Oh, really? Yeah, I do, actually. And this, I'll, I'll segue. So I have done programming in LabVIEW. Um, actually, this is, this is, you know, one of those things where I guess I sort of take it for granted, and then it turns out, like, you're a bit different than everyone else. Like, this happens to me every so often. I think everyone, this happens, right? Like, you just assume people are kind of like you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or at least I do. Um, the maybe that's an assumption itself oh this goes deep hang on i'm having an existential crisis um <laughs> you have uh what is it assumptionception oh gosh uh come back come back come back okay so so this is like a broader story specific story so i wrote some code actually some control loop stuff in lab view and um you know it's one of those things where Everyone says, oh, no code. You can do this stuff in LabVIEW. And then I look at it and I'm like, this is just coding. Like even with debugging, just like without the scary, with like pictures and arrows and not the like curly braces or white space that are your, you know, (laughs) control flows. And so I think like, I don't know, like it's, it's, Everyone says it's kind of different, but then it doesn't end up being all that different. Or at least I don't approach it all that different. Like I end up doing it really similarly. But I think this has held across other things in my experience. Like for an example that's pertinent to like my background is I wrote some C code, but I wrote my C code very much like I write my C++ code. But a lot of people who write C code don't write it in that style. They write it in a completely different style. So to me, I didn't find that much difference. But a lot of people do stuff in a uh, very different style, which makes like, for instance, type safety stuff much harder to do. And so they just lean all in on it not being type safe Mm -hmm. uh, or less type safe, I should say. And so um, I think LabVIEW can be a bit more similar than it is different. I don't think it's some great thing. I mean, but I guess what 
I would say about it is it's an example of the reason why I got into programming it is there was a piece of hardware that needed uh, some code written to control it. And I could have said, you know, there were, I think, C++ bindings for the drivers and stuff. But the person already had been up and fiddling it in LabVIEW. And so using the right tool for the right job, it was my call that the right tool was to just keep doing what they needed in LabVIEW, which was taking some input and controlling some system, some hardware, um, because they already had the parts that I knew would be most difficult to do, like interfacing with drivers and all that stuff, already taken care of. And so the work at hand was easier for me to adapt to the tool than to bring my own tool set. And I think that's something that I take with me a lot of places. Like I joke about, like Jason asked me, like, why are you using C++ or whatever, which is slightly different. But like, you know, if it calls for Python, I'll use Python. If it calls for JavaScript, I'll use JavaScript. Like I may not be the best at those, but like, I think a lot of people spend a lot more time adapting the problem to where they're comfortable than to meeting the problem where it is. Yep, that makes sense. I've I've been burned actually by WYSIWYG twice. Um, <laughs> although you know, for for doing um, for doing a, a desktop apps, it's amazing. So if you're using Qt, um, the Qt Creator or Qt Designer, I think they rebranded it, um, where you basically have this visual thing, and then it auto generates a bunch of Python code, and you can kind of fill in. Or I think I think now you you extend the class that they auto generate, but you effectively you know fill in the functions. I think that's amazing. Works really well. I haven't seen anything like that for the web, um, but that could work if if it existed. But I, I you know I use this tool called uh, Patrick. You might have used this too called Power Drill, which was this WYSIWYG thing where you drag and drop boxes with like little logic blocks in them. And basically what it would do is build a giant SQL statement for you. And so then it would, it, you'd run, you, you would uh, build this flow in Power Drill, and then you'd press go and it would just turn that into a SQL command and run it. And then they, they deprecated it and then they ended up killing it. And so I, I ended up having to, um, and this, of course, like any WYSIWYG tool, the SQL it generates is totally unreadable and atrocious. Yep. So, <laughs> so, so I ended up having to redo all of my work um, you know, writing those SQL queries by hand. Um, and then I, I, I went to another company much later and made exactly the same mistake where they had a tool called, it was called Data Swarm. So Data Swarm was this tool where you could you know, write a bunch of SQL and you could write it in blocks. So you could write a SQL command. And then instead of having all these nested SQL commands, which gets really ugly, you could sort of like pass a SQL to another SQL command. And and it was all driven through this Python um, um, you know, library. And so that was fine. But then they had this thing called Data Swarm Studio, which was this same thing, drag and drop. You, you put little blocks of SQL in these, in these boxes and you connect them with arrows and it knows to chain the commands together. And I, for both of these, I thought the tools were pretty nice. And so I used them and in both times um, they killed them and then I ended up having to redo all the work. And both times, actually, the reasons were exactly the same. They said that that it was just a nightmare for data engineers, um, you know, other people. So basically, it was easy for you to create something. It was hard for someone else to, you know, build state on what you were doing. So it's mm. much easier for other people to just look at a page of code than to like look at all these boxes and arrows. Because you know, once you start introducing all of that, 
now you have this like spatio model, spatial model. Yes. That like like this, yeah, this model that has congruency between like your mind and how you think of things spatially and and the project. And so I guess like, you know, that is something that's really hard for other people. Like like different people come in with totally different ways of, you know, laying things out spatially. Um, and so, yeah, I've never used LabVIEW, but but uh, in general, I try and stay away from WYSIWYG because even though I think it's great, I've just been burned too many times. You're reminding me of, uh, this is a toilet side and we should move on, but that, is it Zaktronic? So like Chem Factory or, you know, some of the other games, like even Human Resource Machine or whatever, where like, it seems really simple and like how I do it. And then if you showed me what you did, like it would be really hard for me to like sit down and actually yeah. parse out like the lack of syntax in the way that we do syntax for like more efficient programming languages. Yeah. It's sort of an impediment to like understanding what someone else did. Like it made sense when you created it and you can look at it and understand and track and debug it, but bringing someone else up to speed is a bit more tricky. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. Um, so James F, you are our next winner. James F is a brand new patron. He's been on for Welcome. for one month. So, so James, you are net positive. You can actually cancel your subscription now. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. And and kids will suffer, James. They will not be able to hear about the show because of you. No, I'm just kidding. But, but James is a, a brand new patron. Uh, was lucky and uh, won a shirt. Congratulations, James! And you know, I'll have to get your address. It's not in the system, but um, um, but no, seriously. I mean, thanks so much for being a patron. I mean, we're just kidding, and uh, and uh, it's it's really great to see new folks, uh, you know, joining and signing up. And uh, yeah, I will track you down and uh, get a T-shirt over to you, James. Thanks. Um. Oh, so we we got through the questions we had before we started. Um, but p some people have been interacting with us. Um, I know I, I can't find the thread, but I think someone commented about for future technology or big technologies, what about AR? Oh, what about AR? That's interesting. Well, I, I can say that I really got into VR this year. And I know we talked about it on a past show, but um, you know, I got um I was super late adopter to most things. Um, similar to a smartphone, I got a VR headset for free, which is probably the only reason why I have one. But uh, but then I really got into it. And actually, I was on it today. I mean, I'm on it right now. You know, yeah, I'm on it right now. I'm on it multiple times a week. It's always, uh, I'm, I'm really into doing exercise. I feel like exercise plus VR, for me, it just works really well. Um, it just really clicks for me. Um, but yeah, so so AR... I've seen some cool things with AR, but uh, I don't know if I've really seen that killer app. I mean, I remember when Google Glass came out, you know, it's it, it was a cool idea, but no one really did anything. You know, one thing I would love to get my hands on actually is the Snapchat spectacles, where it's mm. like those those sunglasses that have cameras built into the sunglasses. So you don't have to take your phone out to take a picture. You know, I like, I miss so many great photos because... Yeah, by the time you take your phone out, go to the camera, it's like the moment's gone, you know. So so that I think, um, you know, those I think are really cool. But I have yet to see an AR, you know, killer app. I mean, what do you feel, Patrick? I think AR is, I was having this conversation with someone, is one of those things that will come. We will eventually get it. 
But the question is like, do we have the right technology at the right state to do it now? I don't know that that's always true because like flying cars never like have all, were always going to be a thing until we realized, yeah, they probably won't be a thing. Um, yeah. I, but I feel like AR is just so like in some form is so obvious. Eventually someone will work out the pattern, like what's needed to just do it real slick, like adjusting for your, what you're perceiving, getting the latency low enough, like having a killer app. Like I feel like it's just too useful that like if it were, you know, super low marginal cost to just add it to my existing glasses or to sunglasses, like why would you not do it? Even if it was low functionality, if the, if the price were low enough. Yeah, there's actually, there's two AR things that I started, uh, that I checked out, which I thought were really cool. One was that, have you seen Brickit? I think we talked about it on Brickit. the show. Brickit is this thing where you, you take a whole bunch of random Lego pieces, you lay them out on your carpet, um, you make sure that there's, they're not over, there's no occlusions. So you, you, you lay them out on your carpet, and then you take a picture with the Brickit app. And it will actually, you know, analyze all the pieces, figure out what they are, and then tell you something cool you can build. And it'll actually give you the instructions step by step and everything. Yeah, you did tell I I'm gonna have to try this. Like you told me about it again. Now I'm like excited. I'm like going on my yeah. phone right now. <laughs> I've never tried it, but uh so that I think is an AR real breakthrough. And then another thing that I found out recently is, and I'm not sure how well this works, but um there's there's a there's a whole collection of apps around productivity, I guess. So there's one app I saw where you take a picture of a collection of stuff on the ground. And in this app, there actually can be occlusions and stuff. The only rule is that all the things have to be the same. Um, you take a picture of a pile of things and it will tell you approximately how many there are. So oh. you know, you drop a bunch of nails on the floor, you take a picture, it's like, oh, 47 nails. And it might be right like within one or two nails. That's a really cool app. And there's another app that's effectively like a ruler or like a tape measure, yeah, but it yeah, uses yeah. AR. Yeah, I think these kind of things are really, really cool. And actually, I think even Google Glass, um, I think it's still used, right, by you know, doctors and, and there's a couple of other productivity uses that it's kept it alive today. Yeah, so the next one was um, on the topic of getting a master's degree or classes. Do you see a benefit of getting certifications? Um, what's your take, Patrick? So I, I will this. say this varies hugely. I know I've talked to people that say like at their work, like it is a rubric, like you must have X number of, you know, they, they give examples here like AWS, Scrum Master titles, like these various certificates or even there's all the IT certificates. So I talk to people who like you must have X amount of training classes in these things to like get a promotion. Um or if you don't like wow. and if you, if that's the case, like yeah sure gotta do it. And those places probably would respect it if you came in. But look, I'll tell you honestly where I am, it doesn't matter a lick. Like if you have it on your resume and you show up, I'm not gonna know what they are. No one else is gonna know what they are. We're not gonna know which ones are easy or hard to get. So I won't say like they're meaningless because you could find someone who knew what they meant, but I know that some certifications are easy. You just put in the time. I know that some are really hard to actually legit, like difficult to get, but I don't know the difference. And so it's a bit hard for me to make an assessment of them. So they don't, they're not something I look for or would encourage people trying to get 
a job at my workplace to 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 pursue. Yeah, that makes sense. I would say um I would take a little bit more optimistic tone uh, you know point of view. I think that if I see um a certificate what it shows to me is that the person has an interest in an area. Um I can't really know enough to say is a certificate you know, uh, did it require, you know, like how challenging it is or what, how comprehensive it is or how accredited it is, but at least, so for example, someone might have a degree in mechanical engineering and you might think right off the bat, like, why is this person joining some AI research lab and they have a degree in mechanical engineering? And so it might not really make sense if they say, oh, but you know, I got if the resume says, oh, yeah, I got that degree, let's say, years ago, but a year ago I took this Coursera course on, you know, deep learning or something like that, then it shows like, okay, this person, you know, wants to pivot and, um, you know, they're putting time and effort into learning, you know, a different set of skills. And so that at least like sends a message and that message might be important to um, to get the interview um, now, like, you know, you, you, I don't think anyone's going to trust any of those certificates. So you're still, you know, you know, the best case is you get the interview and you're going to get tested on AI theory and you're, you're going to know it or not. I don't think anyone's going to say, oh, well, I don't have to interview this person. They have a certificate, right? But uh, yeah, I would say, you know, it, it probably is good to get, um, you know, get past the sourcing and the, the, you know, early stages of screening of an interview. And, uh, and yeah, as, as far as like, will you actually learn the right material and everything that it's just, there's too much variance to really know the answer there. Yeah. I guess like, that's the thing, like anything can be a value add. The question is like relative to what, like if you're doing that instead of spending time committing to an open source project or doing something else, right? Like that's what you got to ask. And for then it's a question of like, your style of learning, your motivations, your skill sets, the job you're going after, like there's just too many variables. That's a really good point, actually. You know, if I saw, you know, to continue my example, if I saw a resume where someone pointed out some GitHub projects or if they were involved in like uh, some some groups on, you know, AI, like maybe some LinkedIn group on AI, if they were moderating that, I think I could get the same signal and like enough to kick off an interview without the person having to get this whole degree. Um, I think that, so I think there's some other, oh, oh, here, sorry, one more. Uh, and then people commenting about things we already commented on, but this is a, a, a never ending loop. So I'll have to probably, <laughs> probably cut it there. But, um, how hard would it be to get a job with an associate's degree? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the, the non-answer, but it's important is, you know, it depends what job, right. But I think, you know, if your goal is to, you know, be a software developer, I think, you know, I think we, I don't know if I, I mentioned this on the show or not, but I think, you know, smaller companies are definitely the way to go. You know, there's this idea of sort of, you know, your resume strength versus your interview strength. And when your interview strength is a lot higher, a lot stronger than your resume strength, then you'll tend to do really well at smaller companies. And um, because smaller companies will, you know, uh, will screen every, well, maybe not screen every candidate, but they'll at least look at every single resume and they might even call every single person who applies. And so, so definitely that's a good way to build up your resume. Once you, you know, once you have, you know, five, definitely by the time you have 10 years of experience, I don't think anyone's really looking at your, your college anymore. And so it's really just about how do you get the flywheel turning? 
And so I think, you know, small companies are a good way to do that. I mean, you know, a lot of the bigger companies, they get millions of resumes and they have all sorts of automatic screening. Um, there's that joke from the Google movie, The Internship. Um, um, there's this joke where the, the person's trying to find people to join his intern group. And he asks where the person went to college. And the person says, University of. And then before he can even say it, just because it started with University of, the guy's like, next, you know, I'm done with you. And so, and so uh, that, that part of the movie always annoyed me. But, but anyway, I mean, the, the point there is, uh, is that, you know, they go through so many interviews that they are optimizing for, um, um, they are optimizing for 100% for precision, right? And if, if they lose 99 out of 100 good candidates, that's fine as long as they get um, enough good candidates to fill up their teams, right? So, um, so yeah, start with a smaller company. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a whole question around should you go back and get a bachelor's degree? I mean, that's a very hard question. I think it depends on many, many factors. But, but, but if you want, if you have an associate and you want to start working, you know, start with a smaller company, build up that resume, and and uh, don't really ever look back. I think you'll be fine. Yeah, I think that was a pretty comprehensive answer. Like it, it really depends. But I would say, again, like on the scale, if I took it on to take a different tack rather than answering it absolutely, answering it relatively, which is, it is much harder to get that first job with an associate's than a bachelor's degree, and and I would say it's like a pretty pretty hard. Like it's 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 it would be significantly hard. You would find a lot fewer people getting in with associates, even with some work experience than people with bachelor's degrees. And I think in part, and that may be like a misunderstanding, but in part, most associates degrees don't cover the like degree specific stuff that you get into in a bachelor's degree. So at least as far as I'm aware, most of the time when you get an associate's degree, it's not going to cover a ton of computer science courses or higher level like domain specific stuff, just like you get that refinement at each level, right? You add it in your bachelor's, you refine it in your master's, you go even further in your PhD. And so I guess there would have to be, like Jason is saying, there would have to be other evidence or some narrative that explained like what that was. Yep, yep, totally makes sense. So we'll do one more and then we'll kind of close it out. So Don R. from Pennsylvania, who... um who's been a member for almost four years. So, nice. wow, what a long time. I mean, it's, uh, that's incredible. I didn't realize we've been on Patreon that long. <laughs> but, uh, man, time really does fly, doesn't it? Um, so, yeah, Don, um, you know, thank you so much for your support. We'll be sending you over a T-shirt. I, I got your address, so we'll, um, we'll definitely get you a T-shirt. And, um, yeah, thanks, all our Patreons. Just a bit of a sort of meta stuff here. Last time we did this, um, two people of the five winners um, I knew personally. And so I kind of felt a little bad. It was, it was like, and it was just random. Um, you know, it's, it was very low probability of that happening, but it did. Um, and I'm looking at it right now. And almost all of my personal friends are at the bottom. <laughs> so uh. that's just how the cookie crumbled this year. But in a way, it makes me feel good that uh, we have... Uh, uh, some some brand new folks here getting uh getting prizes, which is which is really really awesome. And, and thank you everybody for your support and uh, and all of your contributions. We really appreciate it. So maybe we'll go out on uh on on a 
you know, conclude on a kind of question, like what is your, I think we talked about tech trends. I think last year you were saying how space is going to be a, a big deal, or was that something we did in the middle of the year? I talk about it all the time. So, <laughs> yeah, well, I feel like, I feel like space um, in 2021 didn't get that much attention, but I think that's because, you know, all of the other crazy things that happened in the world really took precedent. I mean, with the pandemic and everything. Um, but I uh, mean, I have video of sitting with my uh, my kids and watching them blow up several starships and then finally land one uh, on my phone as we live streamed it in my uh, living room. Was that this uh, year? I, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. OK. Yeah, I'm out of the loop. So, so actually 2021's so been long. Jeez, yeah. So so your prediction was that I think your prediction was that in 2021 they would kind of figure out basically what you just said. So I think you got it spot on. Oh, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think my prediction was around education if I remember correctly. I said that. And I don't know if we I don't think we made one year predictions, but we were just making predictions about the future. And I was predicting that that uh there would be a lot more sort of privatized um, education and scholarships. And actually, you know, one thing that kind of, you know, is starting to corroborate this is, you know, there was a big push to cancel the student debt, which I think would have, would have really just kept the system going. Right. But then now it seems like that's not happening. And so, I, yeah, I'm going to stick to that idea. And I, I think that, that scholarships and, and a lesser degree, you know, you know, academia in general is going to become kind of more privatized and maybe more decentralized. So we'll see. It's been it's been such a crazy year. It's hard to really make progress in that kind of area. Um, but but I, I still think I'm still going to hold on to that prediction. I think it's going to happen. What is your prediction for space? I mean, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was, just, I was I was dead air because I was trying to think of something impact. It was like the vacuum of space. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Wasn't there a there was a probe that like went to the surface of the sun or something? Just yeah, recently? there was. Yeah, that was just recently. I mean, I think my prediction for space and technology is going to be like you're going to see a huge rollout with Starlink because they continue to just push like. Like almost a hundred satellites. I think it's like seventy satellites or something per launch, and so they're just putting so many satellites up. I think you're going to see a huge rollout of Starlink this year, and um, continue to see all the other companies flap around. I think the James Webb Telescope is going to make it up and deploy successfully finally uh, this next year, and that's not SpaceX related. And I think we'll see Starship do. Um, at least two orbital tests uh, where they successfully do uh, do orbits. Cool. Yeah, actually, you just reminded me that, uh, yeah, William Shatner and a bunch of these celebrities oh, went to space. Oh, I didn't even talk about Blue Origin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. right. Wow, actually, it was a good year for space. We should do, you know, we should definitely do a space episode. I mean, you, you know, you'll do the talking. I'll, I'll ask a bunch of dumb questions, but, <laughs> but we should definitely, definitely do a space episode. What about, you know, I've heard about, like there's there's too much debris like where the yeah. satellites are is that a real thing or is that just fear and doubt um i mean it is a real thing and people say oh if it gets bad enough like we won't be able to go to space anymore like we'll lose access to space i think that's a bit of a stretch because we know how we could at great expense you know sort of fix the problem which is 
basically stuff starts colliding with itself in outer space and you just form this cloud of debris, this shell of debris that just, you know, hovers around the earth. And so getting in and out of orbit is, is harder. Um, I think it wouldn't happen right away. I think we know how to clean it up if we needed to. I think it's one of those things that it is just like the first people to land in a new uh, unexplored island or whatever can say like, oh, I'm going to harvest these giant, you know, trees for my ship masts. And then the next people who come, you know, like each, as it becomes more and more settled, you have to be more and more conscientious about preserving what's there. That makes and sense. You can pillage it, but you can also realize, hey, this is not sustainable and you can, you know, adapt it, which mitigates the situation from spiraling out of control and then you enact some ability to clean those things up. So I think we'll see as it gets cheaper and cheaper to get to space, you'll get more stuff in space, but you'll also have the ability to go, you know, deorbit things which could otherwise cause more space debris. Makes sense. I guess a couple of facts just to end this on, which I think, you know, really, you know, I, it's been a very tough year. It's, we kind of started the show by talking about what a difficult year it is. But a couple of amazing facts I saw. One is um, the Earth has 30% more trees than it did at the start of the Industrial Revolution. And uh, it has something like, uh, I think America has something like 30% more trees than it did 15 years ago. Something like wow. that. It's just unbelievable. The amount of reforestation is unbelievable. Um, and then another really cool fact is, um, uh, you know, global poverty over the past 100 years went from 57% to, I think it's just 7 um, or maybe it's 52 to 7. But I mean, it's enormous, like, decrease in global poverty. And so, you know, things are... Actually, like, you know, overall, things are amazing. I mean, we, you put on a long enough horizon, and you start looking like 30, 40 years, and there's been amazing, remarkable progress that, you know, the whole world should be super proud of. Um, so in that sense, it's been, been pretty awesome. But uh, of course, you know, we need to get the pandemic figured out. Cool. All right. I think we can wrap it up there. You know, it's been a really amazing year. I know, you know, Patrick and I both moved. So it's been a very, very busy year. Actually, I moved last year, but I'm still recovering. Been a very busy year for for both of us. But uh, um, you know, hope it's been a great year for all you folks out there. And um, it's been uh, it's been really special being able to have your uh, ears for uh, for an hour every month uh, or every two weeks. Now that we have a producer, and uh, you know, we want to keep the show going. We will keep keep the show going. We have a bunch of cool interviews lined up. We have a bunch of cool topics lined up. We have space. We have space topic lined up. And uh, I'm ready. Um, all right, cool. And uh, yeah, thanks everyone again for supporting the show, and we'll see you all next year. See ya. Music by Eric Barndollar. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.